Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from Kingston University in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, we are joined by Oliver and Thomas of Lutchens Padmanabhan Architects in Zurich. I first met Oliver and Thomas at the AF Masterclass in Oxford last summer. I knew their work in advance, but I was unprepared for their good humour, their generosity of spirit and the lightness of touch with which they discussed their deep and abiding affection for the history of architecture. In this interview, we talk through a wide range of issues from their education as students and how they teach today and the links to the nature of their work method and practice. What I found very interesting was the links they see between our contemporary condition, the Renaissance and Chicago at the end of the 19th century, where typologies and construction technologies provoke a seeming division with the history of architecture and the need to think laterally about how we might re-establish a meaningful connection with this through contemporary technologies and tectonics. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Oliver and uh, Thomas, thanks a million for coming to Kingston. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's Thank a, you. It's a great pleasure and honour. Well, for us. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great to pick up the conversations that we started last summer at the AF Masterclass. And I just, what I kind of wanted to do is talk first of all, is how did you end up being architects? How did you come to the profession? Oh, I guess that's quite different in our cases. I was a graffiti writer. Really? <laughs> yeah, for about 10 years. And it really, I really, really loved doing it. And I realized and I need to find a profession that gives me the same, you know, that I can really go all the way. Huh? Huh. And then the, my mother's, the girlfriend of my, no, the mother of my girlfriend said, why don't you study architecture? And I'm like, oh, well, maybe, yeah. I didn't think about architecture, but... Uh, I started studying and I realized there's a lot of things in common and that through the graffiti I had an incredible sense for urban spaces. You know? mm. And then I was got so hooked on architecture that I completely forgot about graffiti and since then I'm still hooked on architecture. And Thomas? I, um, since I was a child I was always drawing a lot. So I came, indirectly I came to architecture through drawing. Um, but when I was thinking about what would be the right profession for me, I was first interested in art and then I, I started to, um, to study industrial design. Ah. Um, I, because my fa- I had some contacts with industrial designers through my father, who's an engineer. And so once I was in the first year of an, in industrial design in Kassler at the Art Academy, I had a, a, my best friend from high school, he started architecture at the same time. And I, while we, we kept in contact and I realized that architecture was much more um, about the big scale of, of, of our environment and it was also um, much more rooted in history. Um, industrial mm-hmm. design, especially in Germany, is really linked to the history of German, of German industry. Yeah. And uh, while architecture's history goes back... Um, uh, Hundreds of years, so that that uh, for this reason, then I stopped studying architecture. I worked for a couple of months uh, in industrial design. I worked for a couple of months, and uh, I I enrolled in architecture. And in that, so you both went to Zurich? No, I did. No, no, I studied in Aachen at the Technical University of Aachen, and then I did my my third year. I did in Rome ah. at the Sapienza. Right, I did my first design studios in Rome, which was quite crazy. 
Um, and then afterwards I did a master's at Cornell. Ah. And I returned to Europe. Basically I worked for a year in, in, in New York and then I returned to Europe uh, to live in Switzerland. So that's... Yeah. That's yeah. And in those education for both of you in the schools where you studied, were there moments that particularly resonated? Were there characters that particularly helped you connect with the subject, people that you remember strongly? <coughs> for, well, there you go. For me, it was, um, it was a, uh, in Aachen, it was a very technical school, and um, uh, there was one person who stood out who influenced me the most. It was Jan Pieper. He's an, um, a historian of, of cities, and, um, and his in his lectures, he he stressed the possibility of including all kinds of ideas and complexities of life and rituals of the city and into architecture, into incredible fabric. Mm. And I thought uh, the the architecture around me and the architecture that was taught and designed at the school at the time felt so much more poorer and one-dimensional and functionalist. So he somehow. Um, gave me that that longing for an architecture that is different, that is richer. Huh? Um, while he couldn't directly teach it because he was a historian, he didn't teach studio. Um, while he, I became his, at some point I became his teaching assistant, his research assistant, and um, I worked on publications of Renaissance Renaissance architecture and and Indian architecture. So um, this. I got a really deep understanding of how complex architecture can be if you want to become that way. Huh? Mm -hmm. And that was very important for me. I had a terrible start at school. I, I immediately loved it, but I had not the tools to really do anything. So, yeah. And it, everything seemed, the teaching seemed to be like architecture is a science. Mm. And so after a year and a half, I had to take a break and uh, did an internship and I was in a real crisis. The internship kind of brought me back into wanting to study again. Then I had a, a teacher in second year who's Jean-Pierre Durig and he said at the very first day, he said, I want you guys to enjoy it and to have real pleasure and to love what you do. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, that, that's different from the science that I had before. And, and it was a really, really good semester. It was very supportive. And um, so that, I think that guy made me even, made me continue architecture. And later it was people like Hans Kolhoff, who, who I did my very last semester because I was very scared of, of the studio of Hans Kolhoff. It was very old-fashioned, classical architecture, very heavy, very peculiar students. But... I always went to the crits and I always stuck there because it was the most interesting conversations about architecture, mm -hmm. which had nothing to do with this kind of bourgeois lifestyle that the, the pictures of the, the students' work represented, but it was, it was con deep conversations about architectural and formal problems. And mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that was really, he was really great. Huh? It's interesting that both of you identified a slightly... Um, a feeling of being slightly adversarial in the context where you were, as students in your case, being liberated by a historian to think differently from the orthodoxy of the course, and in yours, this kind of feeling that I'm not quite sure if I have a place here, and then it gets liberated by somebody else. I mean, it's not, 
anything other I had a similar experience for very different reasons you know the school was very supportive and all this kind of stuff but I wasn't self-critical thing I suppose really and it was Yvonne Farrell in second year who sat me down and kind of explained it and she actually doesn't remember the conversation because I talked to her about it a year or two yeah. it's amazing these kind of gifts that tutors give you and they're like you overhearing Hans Koloff in a crit yeah. and he's not aware of course that he's touching you but it seems to be a fundamental essence of what's valuable about education is not knowing the consequences of the words that we say because um, you both teach now we both teach and, and we also I think we, we, we try to, to teach what we are doing in the office and it's very connected and very close to how we work and then sometimes we discuss, like, so do you think the students got it, you know? Yeah. And then Thomas always says, you know, teaching it's a, how do you say, it's kind of, when you, when you design something and you build it, it's kind of a two, three year thing. But teaching is a 10, maybe 20 year thing, you know? You, you put something out and you don't know what really is going to happen. It's an it. experiment with, with a result you cannot verify because it takes a lifetime to see whether the students turns into an incredible productive architect or an, an artist, a politician, I don't know. No, the, the fruits of your work are not going to be measured at the end of the semester or not even at the end of the course of studies after four or five yeah. years and not even after a few years because we, we have we have, um, colleagues and our, our friends in our studies during our studies who were very um, facile, could do anything very well and um, but they um, they turned their back on on, on the profession a few years after mm. the, after the graduation, um, and it's very unclear at the beginning who who will continue, who will who will bring the profession forward. Huh? Yeah, it's really hard to explain that to the students. The mm. marks are no reflection of anything other than yeah. precise marking and time. But the best learning outcomes come with a ten or twenty year fuse. And you don't know when in your life it just kind of detonates. Suddenly you're looking at a project and this conversation from somebody in third year comes back. Yeah. Mm, somehow yeah. releases you. Um, it's an interesting thing because the, 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 the conversations which you're talking about with your students then, you seek an empathetic relationship with the issues you're confronting in your practice. Yeah. So effectively you're very unguarded about this is what we're contending with and we're setting the studies in that in that field. Yeah. Which is unusual, you know, not all educational models are set on that empathy, you know. Um, and at the moment, what would you say the territory you're exploring, both in practice and your students, what are the areas that you're finding rich? And I mean, one of the, one of the experiences that we um, have tried to bring into our teaching is that the, um, the exterior expression of the building the facade can be um, the driving force of a project, both um, in terms of urbanism to the exterior, but also in terms of um, the topology, the interior spaces, the use to the interior. And so we make, um, we um, while in our office, of course, we work at the plans and at the elevations and the facades at the same time, in, the, in our teaching, we turn this into an extreme by starting the design through the facades, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, almost like, um, how do you say that, an epidermic, a kind of um, yeah. um, um, approach? Yeah. <laughs> um, in which you, the students are asked 
during the first week to design a huge scale model of the facade. One to fifty more. One to fifty. Hmm. Um, um, and then um, uh, in the process of several through several exercises, says within three weeks they come up with a with the with the design for the entire building, including the facade. And the facade is is the guiding force huh? in terms of what the general cultural feeling and cultural vision of that building is. Mm -hmm. And it's not an I'm by cultural vision I don't mean something very abstract. But it, it's a it's an idea and a feeling that for example if you're doing housing that should be connected to the to the to the feeling of a of an apartment. Yeah? Mm -hmm. To the way of life yeah? that is imaginable inside that apartment. So it's character. The character yeah the yeah the character um the character that goes also that influences also the layout and the, the typology, huh? um, the materials. We, we, we rarely speak about atmosphere or character, but more about expression and, and spatial structures yeah. of apartment buildings or of buildings anyhow. Um, but what we also teach or look at with the students is, is we try to make, put a whole wide range of the history of architecture into the design studio. Because we experience that we, we build or design mostly in contexts that are completely unclear yeah. uh, how you should build your building except for the, the, the building laws. But the architecture in those contexts is, you know, kind of suburban context is very different. It's usually quite weak. It's, it doesn't give you a clue uh, whether your building should be brick or concrete or have m modern or whatever expression. No? So therefore we give them a kind of a context, we give them pairs of references, one from the Renaissance, because we think the Renaissance, uh, you can learn almost anything about facades from the Renaissance architecture, and one from the 20th century. And in, those, in this pair, there's an incredible space in which a project can develop. Mm. We used some of these pairs, we're going to show some later, you know, we used them to explain our buildings or to, to get inspired or to heat us up, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, like look, look, it could be like that. What do you think? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. That's, that's and the good thing about this pair is that the pair contains both the longing for something, say for the Renaissance yeah. architecture, and the 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 attempt for a transformation mm -hmm. of of the Renaissance architecture into into our time, um, with say our materials, with our um, also uh, with a sensitivity that is. Um, also acknowledging the the cultural and the artistic experiences of the 20th century and 21st century. Yeah, I mean the the, the most recent apartment scheme that yeah. is on all the posters here yeah. now, which which is that direct conversation between Corbusier right and the Renaissance. Yeah. And but this so this methodology is one that's very much present in your office. How did you come to meet, set up the practice, discover this way of working? I mean, it must have been didn't come easily, right? Or no, it was a, by chance. I mean, we we met at the office of Diener. Huh? Yeah, of Diener and Diener. Where I was on my way out there, and Thomas was on his way in. We had a short period, and we shared a room for maybe couple of days and he would always turn up the air condition I would always turn it down so it wasn't like a very friendly encounter at first um, but then I was looking for someone to do a competition with me and I called all my friends from Dina when I was back in Zurich and the only one picked up the phone was Thomas you know and then I said hey, look I want to do this competition he's like oh yeah that sounds great uh, but let's just do it the two of us it's complicated enough and I said fine and then we realized oh 
after this competition that actually we work quite well together, you know, even though we didn't know us so well. Yeah, yeah. And so then, yeah, kind of two years later, we no, three years later even, huh? whatever, we started the practice, huh? we just started working. And, uh, you know, things developed organically. That with the pair was, I think, we were in a competition for a town hall. It was a rectangular building and there was, there was a renaissance plan of... Uh, What's it called? Sant'Agnese, no? Sant'Agnese, the, the church on the on the Piazza Navona. Yeah. That is a, a kind of negative space uh, cut out of a of a Roman yeah. palace. Huh? Yeah, I know. It's the the famous um, um, drawing that is, appears also, I think, in Collage City. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and it had the same that drawing. Had be- it's beautiful. It had the same proportions, like the linear city um, drawn by Leonidov of of his. Um, his um, of Magnitogorsk, yeah. Magnitogorsk yeah. project, you know. So you had this 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 strip with the grid and all these elements on it of Leonidov, and you had the opposite, um, uh, the negative approach um, of a carved out space of um, of Ranaldi, I think, um, and um, and we 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 felt that the project should have both. And we felt, there's an, we felt there was an incredible tension between these two drawings. Mm. And, um, and then we, on, on the basis of this, we designed a, a town hall with a community yeah. center. Yeah? For a comp- yeah, it was a competition. Yeah? I think it was really like, Thomas, you were teaching, huh? and he had a crit, and I was in the office of the intern, we put it together, and he was like, wow! And then we sent it to Thomas to make him really hot, you know? Yeah. And I think he was like, oh my God, what's this? You know, we had no clue what it would be, but it was kind of the, the, the impetus of the project or the, the pitch or the, the exactly. level, the, the it was there, you yeah. know? Yeah. And then we, the rest was just work, you know, to, to, to kind of get there. But you would always kind of judge it within the, that pair, like, does it have the same energy? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that is another way of speaking about context. Because that's a context of a, the specific context of a working situation. Mm. When you put, when you, when you confront yourself consciously with a with a series of examples of architecture that are fantastic, and that are on the highest level, huh? yeah. Um, then you are, um, and you judge your own work against this. Huh? Then um, you can create an energy and a and density in your own work. Huh? That will that you would not be able to to get from the real context in which you for which you plan the the building. Mm. And it's also, you know, the, the we feel quite safe about using Renaissance examples because we know we can't build like that yeah. anymore. You know, yeah. it's Hans Kolhoff who's going to be here next week. You know, he still thinks it's possible and maybe he can do it. You know, with his bricks and whatever. Or Stephen Bates, who we met today for lunch, he's. Here he can still do it, yeah? but we build with foam and with metal and, and things like that. So the only thing we can take from the Renaissance is a kind of language or 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 to see how form really works, you know. Yeah. And to to try to transform that into buildings that are actually built out of almost nothing. And the the Renaissance um, architecture has in in some way a similar relationship uh, to architectural truth that mm. we have. Um, at the, uh, in the Renaissance, um, the Renaissance was a time of f- fragmentary um, urban and architectural projects. Um, it was a time of, of political unrest, and you could only do that much in a lifetime. And at the same time, it was also a time when the, the, 
the building construction did not change dramatically from the, le from the late Middle Ages into the Renaissance. But you would still build a palazzo that was a rectangular building, that was masonry, where with some kind of relief structure in the facade. Mm. So the, the, the innovation was very much a formal innovation. Mm. And um, so um, for us, this the kind of the, the, the fragmentary nature of that age is, is a good inspiration because it's not we don't have, we don't have um, the, a classicist's view on the Renaissance. Huh? Mm. The Renaissance is not a kind of for us a classicist age with a coherent architectural system that is completely stable with a language with predefined words and rules etc etc that would, some people would believe it was. Yeah in the 18th and 19th century, especially in Europe. Um, but for us, it's, a, it's, it's an age of experimentation, an age of, um, of in, invention, because of the Renaissance architects, they realized that they knew very little about antiquity, and they knew that the, the problems, their contemporary problems, they had to solve. There were no antique solutions for that. Huh? Mm -hmm. So they had to invent everything. Huh? Yeah. All the typologies in the Renaissance and the uses were different from antiquity. And it's funny because it's possible to speak of another moment like that, perhaps in Chicago, with Sullivan mm. and that period, yeah, right? Yes. You know, the similar confrontation of mm -hmm. typology and history and a crisis. Right, right. And but an aspiration for continuity, but on the terms of its age. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's kind of it's 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 fascinating that you're you, you pitched the Renaissance in that territory because it was also to do with frugality at times, and this kind of idea where you're manipulating the contemporary language of construction, which, as you say, is mainly air now. Mm. It's, it is a balloon <laughs> or a series of balloons, and the kind of experimentation which led to that. I mean, so. I mean, obviously, there's a concern of relief, which arrives from external insulation and this kind of stuff. And those kind of oscillations between technical solutions and the history of architecture, were they born out of building economics? Or were they always a formative part of your position at the start? You know, a kind of a, an open-mindedness about how the building might be manifest? No, no, no. It, well, was, it, it uh, was necessity at the beginning, yeah. yeah? Because the first, uh, it still is. Yeah, it still is. <laughs> so if I give you an infinite budget, you would be carved out of solid marble. <laughs> we would, we would struggle. Of course, it would be something new and it would be difficult. Or but we, we started off with a uh, with a, a house for two families on a very difficult site, with a very complex volume that grew out of the building law, and we knew that it was only could only be done if we if we use the, the cheapest possible material for the facades, which is outer insulation with a millimeter layer of plaster, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. a half a millimeter layer of plaster. So um, uh, we knew that, that we couldn't handle the budget if we don't decide from the beginning to use that material. And, and but when we made that decision, we knew that we could, that would create a little bit of financial wiggle room for us to, to articulate these things, the edges of these fields of plaster, mm. the windows, um, the window sills, um, the handrails, the, all these things that also come with architecture. And it's interesting because, you know, you speak about extracting knowledge from the Renaissance and from other periods. 
And it seems to be as much from the representations of those ages as the buildings themselves. So it's both the drawing and the building, because the drawing is somehow a way of translating. You know, it's not clear from a drawing what it's made of, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And do you use drawings or models in that way to be kind of, um, say, uninterested in material, but interested in form or interested in engaging with the substance of things? At what point does the material arrive in the process? Oh, this is external insulation, or this is fiberglass rain screen or sometimes it's quite late um i think we we really look we don't start with material ideas yeah because mostly it's kind of clear what it will be anyhow but we start more yeah with with we built the model very early the 1 to 50 model the whole building in a kind of abstract way it's also something to kind of develop. And that's made in card and paper? It's or? card and paper. It's quite cheap. And usually Thomas builds them alone. Really? Yourself yeah. still? You yeah. cut yeah. the card? Yeah. Because yeah. he's very fast. <laughs> very, he knows how, when to be precise and when not. Yeah. And he, he also sometimes, you know, we talk about it and we kind of know what we want. And sometimes we really don't. And then he just uses the model like a drawing, you know. And... Uh, yeah, I think he, he sees the cutting of the cardboard like, you know, sketching, sketching yeah. a bit. I, when, when, I, when I was uh, sketching, when I was drawing, since I was a teenager, I, 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 want, I, I was in love with the outline, with the precise outline. Mm. I used hard pencils, hard leads, like 2H, 4H, 6H to sketch. Mm. I, um, I didn't look for the pictorial, the picturesque. I was looking for, I was wanted to use the line like a laser. So the, the step from that hard lead to the knife that cuts the board, <laughs> it's just a small step. <laughs> yes, it is. And, the, and the, the, pleasure, the pleasure that I feel when I cut a window into a piece of cardboard and that you open it up and you see the edge of the window and you see how that opening creates an unbelievable tension mm. on the surface of the board of the cardboard. That's just as 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 great as 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 the experience when you draw and you and the the, the figure is is somehow starting to be defined by a line by the outline. Yeah. Yeah. Even even if I go, I can do straight lines without a ruler. You know, I can. You know, so even if I sketch. You know, um, so that's very close. You know, I have that. I, I as a teenager I had that obsession with with the the hard lead. You know. And you, <laughs> I, I don't use hard leads, I have to say myself, I'm much more soft. Which way do you work yourself? I mean, are you similarly precise? I'm not so good in model making. I don't like to do it as much as Thomas does. I'm more the digital kind of guy. But um, And is I, that collage or line drawing? Or no, 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 it's, it's drawing. Um, it's also, we developed a technique where we draw with pencil and a lot of tipex. Yeah. which is amazing too. You know, you have a printout, the printout is in scale, and you can just erase some lines of the tipex, and after a minute when it's dry, you can just go over it with the pencil. No? So you don't work in overlay, you work on the drawing. We work on, on, on the drawing. We, we never do options, like mm -hmm. very rarely do options, we just always go forward. Yeah. And, but I, the, the sensibility that Thomas described about lines, I, I share that as well. You know, I, I also not a... a even though, and maybe it's, now I realize it could be from the graffiti thing because that's about letters and it's about outlines, you know. I was never really interested in, in the painterly quality of color and things like that. I liked silver and black, you know. And, and 
yeah, I guess our architecture is quite like that in a way. Huh? It's not a, a, a we don't do the picturesque. Huh? Mm. It's it's uh, it's also not expressive. It's it's rather sharp and, and language somehow. No, it's uh, I wouldn't say abstract, but uh, yeah, it doesn't deal with with pictorial uh, ideas really. And, and so we that's why we also we don't work on perspectives. You know, we make the model, and the model stands for a very long time. You can look at it from all the directions. You can really judge proportions, and then we take pictures of the model. And then we have to submit, we have to collage some stuff in so that the, the juries and the competitions don't think like, oh, these guys crazy, they want it a bit pictorial, no? And because the model inside, it has, it, the, the floors are built, so it has, the facades have something that holds them up. Mm. You can take off one facade separately from the other one and redesign it. So they have, when we design facades, then we have, sometimes one facade comes easily and it just stays more or less like it is the first time. And another facade may be very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so we redo it and rebuild it ten times, and take it off, glue it on, take it off. And so there is a, there is a constant um, conversation between the different facades, between the two-dimensional and the three-dimensional. And we really like to, to we are really interested in, in the conflict and the break and the kind of on the edge of a building. Mm -hmm. We like we like the, the, the strange um, contradiction of a building being a volume on one side and being a, a construct that's composed of planes mm. on the other hand. Mm -mm. And that con contradiction is, we, we really enjoy that. Yeah, and it's present in the work. You can read that interrogation in the work without it being foregrounded, it's there. That the officer's conversation can be read yeah. in it. And I think. There's something very interesting about your uh, agenda as regards relief and as regards shadow within a facade, mm. and it's 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 somehow another way of achieving. It's not a pictorial thing at all, but there is a figurative element to this. There's a mm. there's a figure within a frame, and there's yeah. A, yeah, and there's a kind of a relaxed attitude to this. I suppose conversation. There's a sort of conversation in the work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We, we like that because we, we talked about this um, subject um, on the train when we came huh? um, and uh, we were we were looking for the right words in English and now you you say conversation because we were we are thinking about uh, with for us both Aldo Rossi and Robert Venturi are important characters mm. and influences and we tend to think that that um, Rossi is more on the, on the silent side huh, of mm. architecture, but well, Venturi's architecture is more um, um, maybe eloquent, or it's more about a conversation. Huh? Mm. And and we we, we we like to include the the um, the user and the pedestrian and the observer into that conversation. Huh? Mm. Mm -hmm. It can be read. It it, it, it can be it, it can be read, but it's also it's somehow. It's also the the architecture should be giving, in a way. Yeah, because it, it 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 leaves a kind of an ambiguity of sorts, which can start another. You know, it, it, it leaves a gap by which others might actually read into the work, but also extract themselves. You know, it's, it's not interested in being fully autonomous. Do you know the kind of version of architecture whereby the building becomes an autonomous, almost prism within itself, yeah. self-containing yeah. all of its own logic structures? Yeah. yeah. Whereas. 
you know, beyond the facade, frequently in the plan as well, you'll see other logic systems in your buildings mm -hmm. yeah. in conversation with that facade and yeah. juxtaposed with it, but not about resolving or calming, <coughs> yeah. but about leaving a certain tension or gap between yeah. those yeah. things, yeah. Which, which seems to me very much to do with this spirit of residential or domestic work where we somehow have to navigate between the private world and the, mm -hmm. and the civic, right? Mm -hmm. So there's... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is, we, 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 just in that, in that area then... Um, I mean, obviously, in 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 the country where you work, you've got people like Peter Merkley and others that are that are exploring or have explored similar aspects in different ways. And are there other architects in the world that you're looking to that are working in similar ways, or that you find are somehow talking in this way about the making of a facade? Um, I think the um, our good friend um, Job Flores mm. um, of Monadnock. Um, in Rotterdam, he's um, we we really enjoy following his work. Yeah, it's um, great, yeah. Uh, because he's um, uh, he's working under very very different uh, circumstances um, in a, in a, um, in the Netherlands, where there's a, a the, the cities are like a loose carpet, mm. and um, and the um, the figural quality. Of a building um, that stands alone, um, in a way, almost becomes a necessity. Huh? Yeah. Um, but he can. He's able to combine that fibril quality with um, incredible civic sense huh? um, that we really admire, huh? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we like to like to follow. We are we are surprised and and amazed by every work that comes out of his office. Yeah, no, that's interesting. They're, mm. we'll, we'll go, hopefully yeah. inviting them yeah. next year to speak, but it's, it, it, it does seem to be something which is of the time. It does seem to be a conversation. Mm. This is not, a, this is not, it's not common, but it does seem to be that there is a pressure for a more communicative or a slightly more mm. relaxed attitude to how the language of architecture, the materials of architecture might be deployed while still connecting with history. And it's, it's, it's yeah, but if you look at, at the work by, by Job, you can see that there's both um, a, a relaxed attitude uh, towards the, be the means that are used yeah. and, um, and a real um, emphasis on, on the power of architectural language and the possibilities of architectural language and also the the use of very emphatic mm. forms mm. Um, um, and and to, in a way in his work you see the juxtaposition of architectural dignity and the lightness um, that is that seems appropriate to us of our present situation no? of mm -hmm. um, of of, um, of a society that is um, that should be um, should have many voices, yeah. Should be open. But what's really interesting about that, that 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 voice is that it's it's not concerned with necessarily humor or wit or any of the problems that arose with high postmodernism, but it is concerned with a kind of a light-hearted or a light-spirited engagement with the deep histories of architecture. It's, yeah, and. To be precisely, I think humor is great. It's it still works in architecture, but the problem of postmodernism is irony. Right? Yes, because sorry, with I irony, yes, yeah, you yeah. you kind of yeah. distance yourself. You do something, but you say at the same time, "Oh, I but I don't it, mean, I mean it." Mean you know? it yeah. and that's a problem. And we that's we really we really don't 
we are not like that and yeah. job isn't like that and i mm. think at the time there's there isn't many who are like that there's a few who still think it's still very valid to do that but it's it's a pity because it it, it evaporates as, as soon mm. as you look too close to, to such a kind of architecture it starts mm. to fall off your eye no? completely well because it's not born from sincerity yeah yeah so there's nothing at risk fundamentally yeah. so yeah. but if you struggle exactly. and yeah. you find something and then you add a touch of humor to it that's great no i mean yeah. and i think a lot of the great architects do it like look at frank geary's work you know that's yeah. it always has it somehow and you also see it's very generous in a way or Venturi, of course, and but especially the Venturi before before the signs and all that, he was really... Or even when you go back in history, you know when you're walking around a building and the architecture or the architect makes you smile in some way. You know like the corner resolution by Bramante in Santa Maria, you yeah. know, this... Yeah. Not, it's the capturing of the edge of the edge. Yeah. And it's a game to do with veil and screen <coughs> and it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. It is humorous in the kind of big-bodied version of that, a kind yeah. of deep belly laugh, yeah, yeah. but highly judged and highly articulated. And you cannot but be delighted when you see those kind of moments of judgment. Mm -hmm. So it occurs throughout the history of architecture, and yes, irony is a problem, and the lack of sincerity is a problem. We are allegedly in a post Truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's context. That's Born from the same issue, perhaps. Yeah. You know, and in and an inability to be arch and not to be sincere in what you're saying, that you can always pull it back off the table. Whereas the sincere voice is actually something that's harder to articulate right now. Yeah. In yeah. political discourse yeah. in particular, it seems to be continually just destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And we think that that um, um, the the question of of what you can say, what you're able to express in architecture really depends on on the means you're using. Huh? I mean, um, there's a... Um, we often feel that the, the more... Um, the, the, the grander the expression is, huh? the more light-hearted the way should be it is expressed. Huh? Yeah. And um, so that, in a way, I mean, I always like to like to bring in my German identity um, for that example because in in Germany, when you want to say something serious, you 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 speak with a serious voice, so everybody understands that it's serious. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you uh, in 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 England, but also probably in Ireland, I guess, um, you can um, when you're able to uh, to express something very uh, very serious with a with a light tone, no? and um, and that it takes the heaviness out of, of the serious um, um, message, but still everybody understands that it's serious, no? mm -hmm. and um, so there is a um, very um, intelligent relationship between the tone of the voice and the message. No? Well, that's interesting because. In that spirit, it's possible to see, you know, some of the you know the works by Tony Fretton, like the Listen Gallery in the mm -hmm. Red House. Yeah, Th that's a particularly British or English. You know, if you look at Soane, if you look at Lutyens, if you yes. look at these kind of characterful architects that are able to play deep and loose at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the spirit you're talking about, right? So it's it's it's. So you mentioned uh, a list of our heroes. Yeah, yeah well, mine yeah. too. I mean, yeah. they're famous people. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I'm aware that I've caught you and you're going to give a lecture mm. and we're running now into that time. Mm -hmm. Although I hate to wind up this conversation. 
But to close, we generally just ask uh, for if you were to give one piece of advice to give a student, so we're surrounded by students here in the school, hammering away as we talk, literally. If you had advice to give a student, yeah, you should, you should, um, you should look at and you should find out, and you should believe in what you really like. I guess that's the most important thing. Yes. Yeah, that because it, you can only do. Um, you can only do good work if that goes uh, th through your heart. And it's a very good place to end up. So uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. For the thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. In our next episode, we are joined by Professor Hans Koloff, and I hope you join us then. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and to leave comments. Thank you very much. <laughs>